CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Georgia is one of four states without a hate crime law. In 2000, state legislators passed a law forbidding acts targeting victims due to bias or prejudice. The state Supreme Court struck it down four years later for being too vague. Repeated efforts since have failed. Last year, a bill brought by Chuck Efstration, a Republican state representative from Decula, passed in the Georgia House. It is now up for debate in the state Senate. There are, of course, arguments for and against legislation, but we wanted to better understand how hate crime laws work and what's at stake if the law does pass. Rachel Glickhaus is a journalist for ProPublica and partner manager for the publication's Documenting Hate Project, which published a series of investigative reports about hate crimes in America, and she's joining us now via Skype. Rachel, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So before we get going, what classifies as a hate crime? How is that different, for example, from hate speech? So... A hate crime is essentially any crime that has been committed. So it could be vandalism, assault, murder, that was committed specifically because the perpetrator had a bias towards the victim. Um, That could have been because of their religion, their race, their uh, having a disability. Um, So that there are laws in place that have specific punishments for those types of crimes. Okay, so that is usually the hate crime layer that's added upon state statute, that it's about the punishment that you get? Usually, yes. So adding a hate crime charge will add uh, time to a person's sentence, for example. Uh, Essentially, the idea is to add penalties upon the existing ones that the person will get for the underlying crime, like, say, assault. Is there a data on the numbers of hate crimes nationally or, or even state by state? So there is FBI data that comes out on a yearly basis, um, but it is sorely lacking for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, it is not mandatory for police departments to send their data to the FBI, so some simply do not. Many Police departments have uh, messy data that might be incorrect, um, and that will make its way into the national data. There are a number of jurisdictions that say they have zero hate crimes in some larger population areas. That sort of begs to question whether that's true or not. Um, Some police don't get proper training. And more than 50% of hate crime victims don't report to police, so those are simply not reflected at all. So we know that that number is a snapshot of what's happening, but it is not a complete number. So uh, the most recent data is from 2018, and there were around 7,000 hate crimes reported to the FBI. But the Bureau of Justice Statistics does a survey uh, which estimates there could be up to 250,000 hate crimes per year. So why so many falling through the cracks of law enforcement or, let's say, uh, sentencing? So... As I mentioned, training can be an issue. Some states don't require training on hate crimes. States have different laws, for example, on the local level, and they may not be trained on how to address a hate crime when it happens or how to properly investigate it. Something that we found through our reporting 
is that some police departments don't have a great system for tracking these types of crimes internally. So there might be a drop-down box or a check mark um, that they have to add when a crime potentially involves bias. If not all the officers are up to speed on how to fill out that information, you get a lot of incorrect data so about what is actually a hate crime. What are some of the signs or evidence that that investigators or police should look for when determining whether a crime was motivated by bias or prejudice? So the FBI has a manual, which is actually publicly accessible online, that has a whole checklist and procedure about how to look for bias. And what they recommend is a two-tier process in which when a case is initially reported and and police arrive on the scene, that they uh, take note of everything that happened, but then they later pass on that information to an investigator who potentially has more experience identifying these types of crimes, who will go back and determine if, in fact, there was bias involved. And the FBI used to do a lot of trainings uh, in the field with local departments. It still does occasionally, I think. But the idea is that there is a process in place where the police have to determine if a crime was was done specifically because of bias or if bias was sort of incidental, like if a person used a slur, but they got into a fight over uh, something completely unrelated. Mm. So they essentially have to determine that a crime happened specifically because of a person's prejudice. What is the burden of proof in a court that a crime was indeed motivated by bias or prejudice? I mean, how difficult or easy, rather, is that to prove? That's a great question because the burden is very high. So we know that um, the number of reported hate crimes largely outnumbers uh, the number of successful prosecutions. Um, It's a bit difficult to do a nationwide look at that um, because of the nature of the court systems. But we did a report on hate crimes in Texas, where the reporter looked over a three-year period at the number of hate crimes reported and the number that were prosecuted, successfully prosecuted. And there were more than 1,000 hate crimes over that period and less than 10 prosecutions. So the proof that has to be shown, again, has to indicate that the person acted because of their prejudice against the victim. And it is very difficult sometimes for prosecutors to do that. So they are not always eager to take on these cases with the hate crime charge if it's going to make it a lot harder for them to prove their case. Because if they can very clearly prove the underlying crime, say an assault, they are going to want to pursue that um, with the evidence that they have. But to add that hate crime charge and to prove that, they have to prove that the person acted specifically out of prejudice. So in cases like, say, the Charleston shooting, um, that was very clear cut. There was a ton of evidence to show that he was a white supremacist, that he had planned this. But it isn't always that uh, simple, and it isn't always easy to show that the person Uh, acted out of specifically because of their bias. 
Rachel Glickhouse is with us. She's a journalist who served as a partner manager for ProPublica's Documenting Hate Project, which produced a series of investigative reports about hate crimes in America. So there is a federal hate crime law. Why then do so many states or have so many states adopted their own hate crime laws when a federal law exists? Um, So the idea is that these crimes can be prosecuted at the local and state level. The federal law uh, exists to provide protections um, on a sort of on an overarching scale. And that law is used by federal prosecutors when they decide to take cases to federal court. Um, So that would mean an FBI investigation. They essentially have to determine if they can take that case. There are a couple of factors that go into that. But one factor that does uh, matter a lot is if a state lacks a hate crime law. So if a particularly egregious case happens in the state that lacks a hate crime law or that lacks a strong, coherent hate crime law, federal prosecutors um, and federal investigators can take that case on. So you can be charged for a federal hate crime in a state that doesn't have a hate crime, correct? In a state that doesn't have a hate crime law. Yes, that's correct. But you can also be charged uh, in one that does. So, for example, um, in New York, we recently had a crime where um, Orthodox Jews were targeted by a man with a knife. And New York has a hate crime law, but that case was taken on as a federal case. And also there was a case in Brooklyn recently, another anti-Semitic crime that was also taken on as a federal case. So they can go in any state, but... They do make sure that in states that um, lack any type of uh, hate crime law, that if there is a very egregious case, they'll go, they'll try to address it. In Georgia, some of the critiques against the law have been that they place one group above another as being more valuable, therefore stripping equality. And as, as hate crime laws protections for LGBTQ community people, for example, would that clash with efforts for something like a religious liberty legislation? Um, I don't know that it would. The idea is simply to add extra penalties to crimes that are already going to be prosecuted. So the idea is that these are a very specific type of crime that in sort of the the reasoning of the law deserve an extra component of punishment. So it is essentially a tool that law enforcement and prosecutors can use in this very specific type of crime. I mentioned earlier, Georgia State Representative Chuck Estration is pushing a bill to establish a hate crime law here in Georgia. And this has happened just recently, just last year in Indiana, and the governor, Eric Holcomb, signed a new hate crime legislation into law. So what happens? What does it look like when a state establishes and begins implementing a new hate crime law? Uh, It really is incumbent upon um, local authorities to actually move forward as a result of the new legislation. So that means um, not only prosecutors uh, taking on incoming cases, but also to make sure, for example, that police are properly trained and know about the law and the process that they have to go through in order for this to make its way through the system. So it's not going to happen overnight. It really requires some work on behalf of the authorities. Rachel Glickhouse, thank you for your time. Thank you. 
Rachel Glickhouse, journalist who served as partner manager for ProPublica's Documenting Hate Project. You can find more on the project at gpbnews.org. Up next, NPR Steve Inskeep was in Atlanta last week to talk about his new book, Imperfect Union. It's about a 19th century couple that had a remarkable influence on the country's footprint and politics. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that conversation when On Second Thought continues. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Millions of NPR listeners trust Steve Inskeep to help them make sense of the news. The Morning Edition anchor manages to sound simultaneously knowledgeable about the facts and curious about the human side of stories, attributes of an incisive interviewer, and author. Inskeep's third book, Imperfect Union, How Jesse and John Fremont Mapped the West, Invented Celebrity, and Helped Cause the Civil War, follows an ambitious couple through some decisive events in American history. Inskeep tracks the story of John Fremont, namesake of several American cities, towns, streets, and at least one casino, and gives equal time to his wife, Jessie, who understood the mechanics of myth-making and used them to elevate her husband in the minds of the American public. I spoke with Steve Inscape on stage at the Carter Presidential Library at an event for Acapella Books. In the book, Inskeep quotes a magazine from the 1840s listing John Fremont alongside Christopher Columbus and George Washington as the most pivotal figures in history since Jesus Christ. Well, I asked Inskeep who John Fremont was and why his name has largely faded from American history. John Charles Fremont was a man of modest origins. He was born in Savannah. He was the son of a French immigrant who had run away with a married Virginia aristocrat. So he was an illegitimate child and had a different, uh, difficult childhood. But he got into the United States Army. He went out for them and explored the American West. His job was to make maps of the American West. But more than that, to promote the American West and explain the American West for the public to encourage people to go out there and settle because that was the way that the United States was going to hold on to the Louisiana Purchase and take over Oregon and, as it turned out, also take over the Mexican province of California. These were vital events in the history of America as people understood at the time. Um, But they are also events that we feel some ambivalence about today. Uh, because, of course, there were countless Native people who were dispossessed of their land or killed in the process of westward settlement. It was the conquest of land from Mexico in a war that the United States pretty clearly provoked. And so it's, it's stuff that we don't, we're not sure exactly how much we like it, even though we like the country that came of it. I'll say one other thing about why he's not as well-known today as perhaps he might be. I mean, he's very famous in history books. He comes up, he's mentioned in history books about uh, westward expansion and California and the Civil War in which he was a general. And the thing is that in the Civil War, he argued with Abraham Lincoln. No one in history ever argued with Abraham Lincoln and came off well later on. Um, He was a general in Missouri. 
He gave an order to free some Missouri slaves. Lincoln kept telling him to take it back. And he finally sent his wife, Jesse Benton Fremont, back to Washington, and she attempted to tell Abraham Lincoln what was what because she was a remarkable individual, but not quite remarkable enough. Lincoln uh, was unimpressed and said to her, according to one of Jesse's letters, you were quite a female politician. She is a stunning character, and she recognizes so much of his notoriety is because of her machinations. She was kind of a publicist, a defender, an aggressive promoter. Um, And one critic of John Fremont later called her the better man of the two, in fact. What did she understand about the press at that time and also the power of image that worked? Jessie Benton, which was her maiden name, was the daughter of a senator who himself deeply understood publicity at this very early moment in America and this very early moment in the American media. Thomas Hart Benton was an ambitious guy. He was a lawyer. He was also brutal in a way that people would be in frontier America. But he was also talented with words. And he became a newspaper man. He understood the power of publicity and passed that on to his daughter, Jessie. Senator Benton expected her to be a son, and she said, my father gave me early the place a son would have had. And as a little girl, in her memory, she would follow along with him when he went hunting. And when he went to visit presidents, she would sometimes come along. And... She absorbed his understanding of publicity and also gained some of his connections. And her husband would go way out west and would send a letter back, but he would write it almost like a press release, and without being told, she would know what to do with it, and she would would get it to a newspaper and get it published. And the way the media worked then, it was kind of like sharing articles on Twitter, I guess. I mean, one newspaper would receive a newspaper from somewhere else in the mail and just reprint any articles that seemed of interest. And John C. Fremont's exploits spread very quickly across the country. And they became this kind of celebrity power couple. Sightings of them were reported in the press from the 1840s onward, not just in the U.S., but actually abroad. But these forces, you know, the political ambitions of expanding the U.S. to the West Coast, how did John Charles Freeman, Fremont rather, serve those goals of the expansionist party like Senator Benton? Senator Benton had an idea that the way the United States would capture the Pacific Coast was not through a war, but through settlement, which is the way that America has expanded westward. Uh, I don't think that this is something that I fully understood. The United States gradually captured territory that it didn't really uh, have any claim to because Americans showed up there and eventually expected to become part of the United States and then tried to do it. Senator Benton had witnessed a lot of this, understood it, and understood that if American settlers could be enticed to go to Oregon, which was disputed territory with Britain, that they would strengthen the American claim to the territory. And he had this amazing global vision, which is one of many ways that this, to me, is a very modern story. Benton thought that if the U.S. had a Pacific coast, there could be an American port on the Pacific, and the United States could be trading much more directly with Asia. 
he foresaw the trade across the Pacific with China and with India that is now at the absolute heart of the global economy. And it's the early 1800s, and he sees this. But the various presidents of the time didn't necessarily go along with this. Benton, as a senator, wasn't in charge of anything, had to come up with his own foreign policy. And his notion was that if his son-in-law, who happened to be in the army, could be sent on mapping expeditions along what was becoming known as the Oregon Trail, that he could then promote the idea of going along the trail. And the very fact that an army officer was doing this would create the impression with the public that the government supported the settlement of Oregon, even though the government didn't. And Fremont understood all of this and was very loyal to his father-in-law and often would stretch or simply ignore his orders in order to make sure he was doing what Senator Benton wanted. You're listening to author and NPR Morning Edition host Steve Inskeep talking about his new book, Imperfect Union, how Jesse and John Fremont mapped the West, invented celebrity, and helped cause the Civil War. Our conversation was recorded live at the Carter Center in Atlanta at an event for Acapella Books. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is On Second Thought. Well, this is complicated, not just because the, there's land held in the West by Mexico, but also British troops are occupying in the, in the Northwest, but also because this threatens, expansion threatens this parity of the slaveholding states and the, and the free states, as they say. So, you know, we live here in the South in the shadow of this story of slavery, but this reveals how all-encompassing this is in American politics at yeah. that time. I know it's a big story, but can you give us that background? I absolutely can. It's one thing that is has drawn me to this story and that is much on my mind as I cover the news today, even as I cover the impeachment trial. There's a big backdrop to our really vicious, really divisive politics today, and that is a demographic change in America. Um, there are populations of people in America that are growing more rapidly than others. They tend to be people of color, immigrants, uh, we could name a variety of different groups and subgroups. And it, what is destabilizing about that is that they are more likely, at this time anyway, to vote for one party, the Democratic Party. And so you have Democrats who confidently expect this demographic change to bring them more and more election victories. And you have Republicans or conservatives who fear not just losing an election, but losing for all time which is a terrifying thought for a lot of people, and it becomes a destabilizing thing that makes people willing to go to great extremes. When we go back to the 1840s and 1850s, we see something quite similar that was happening. There was a demographic change in America, a divided America, an America that was increasingly divided between North and South. Now, I should say, uh, on this stage especially, that slavery is everyone's legacy. Slavery is Boston's legacy as much as Atlanta's legacy, because the whole country in some way was involved in the slave economy. And slavery was legal just about everywhere at the beginning of the country. But in the early decades of the United States, northern states gradually abolished slavery, whereas southern states more and more aggressively embraced it and saw it as part of their identity, as well as part of their economy and part of their society. That became a great divide. And as it happened, the population of the North grew much more rapidly than the population of the South. That was the demographic change. 
And that gave the North increasing political power and made people in the South feel more and more insecure. And the capture of territories in the West then created the even more destabilizing question of whether these new territories would be slave states or free states once they became states. And because so much economic power was at stake as well as political power was at stake, it became a profoundly destabilizing time. Mm-hmm. It also, John Fremont, on his expeditions, he worked with German immigrants, French immigrants, but also free men of color and Mexicans helped to actually make his fortune yeah. in, in many ways. When he got into politics in 1850, 51, uh, he betrays them. He goes with that view that they don't have the same claim to the yeah. land. So, yeah. so was that just political expediency oh or was gosh. that deep prejudice? It's, it's an amazing story to me, Virginia. First, we should mention that Fremont, on one of his expeditions, rode into Mexican-controlled California with 60 gunmen and began the process of taking it over for the United States, as one does when one is traveling. <laughs> on his own authority, On his own authority, way. more or less. Uh, yeah, and it is a complicated story, uh, but that is the essence of it. And while he was involved in conquering California, he bought lots of California real estate. Again, as one does when taking over a place, you get a little bit for yourself. Um, he then went away from California, but returned in 1849 to learn that there was a gold rush on. And encountered some people coming up out of Mexico, and they'd come to seek their fortune. They had experience mining for gold in Sonora, in Mexico. And Fremont said, well, I've got a bunch of land, and I bet there's gold on it. Why don't you go prospect there, and we'll split it. And they went off and made him rich. Not long after that, California became a state, and John Charles Fremont, the conqueror of California, as he was known, was selected as one of California's first two United States senators and proposed a bill to regulate gold prospecting. And the bill said that you have to buy a permit in order to prospect for gold, and in order to buy a permit, you must be a United States citizen. And there is a debate on the floor of the U.S. Senate in which it becomes clear that this wasn't exactly about supporting citizens. It was about keeping out certain races and ethnicities of people, um, particularly Mexicans. The very people who had made him rich, he turned against. One presumes because that is what his voters wanted. And he'd been selected for a very short Senate term at the beginning of the state and was going to face re-election right away. And he made this proposal, this anti-immigrant proposal, um, in an even more disturbing, to our eyes, uh, twist. There were senators who rose up at that time and spoke up for immigrants and said that immigrants had just helped to settle new states like Iowa and Wisconsin. True, but those were European immigrants. So they amended the bill to say that the mining permits could belong to U.S. citizens or Europeans of good character. And that way they could still keep the Mexicans out, along with the Chinese. In the end, the bill didn't pass. It was almost too cynical by half, and Fremont found out that other people were going to be more nativist than him, and they still made him uh, to look out, to, it made him to seem uh, an effete Washington elite out of touch with their nativism, and he was defeated for re-election anyway. I'm going to ask you to indulge me because there's this image of, uh, or the story of Jesse's passage to San Francisco the first time. Of course, she has to go through Panama yeah. from St. Louis. 
But when she comes to the coast, like the gold rush, what it has done, you know, it's oh just God. a fantastic uh, little recollection. I loved learning this story. I sort of knew but didn't understand until I researched this story that this was the easy route to California. I mean, you could go over the Rocky Mountains and over the Sierra Nevada and over deserts and everything else and maybe die. Or you could go through Panama and die much more conveniently. Um, <laughs> you would take a ship down to Panama and then it was only like 50 miles instead of 2,000 miles. You know, it was like 50 miles overland, but it was a terrible 50 miles and it was chaos and there was fever and there were thousands of people going that way. And so when you get to the Pacific side, there are no ships to take you to San Francisco because every time a ship would go to San Francisco, and anchor in San Francisco Bay, the crew would abandon the ship and go prospect for gold. <laughs> there are photos from the 1850s of hundreds of ships just kind of, they're just like wrecks. They're just like floating around San Francisco Bay. So it took a while for captains who were determined to round up a crew, maybe of disappointed gold miners who'd had enough, and get a ship back. But Jessie eventually got out of Panama, eventually got to San Francisco, and she does have this amazing description of what, what, what is now one of the most beautiful cities in America, if not the world. Uh, but at that time, it's a collection of shacks uh, on treeless hills. The streets were made of boards, and the buildings were made of boards, and it was incredibly cold and foggy all the time, and there were fleas everywhere and you would just sleep anywhere that you could, could get. And this was the land of opportunity that had drawn thousands of people from all over the world. It's just fantastic. There are so many, and you traced some of the routes that Fremont took with some of his parties, I know. But the stories that were coming back of, you know, men eating grasshoppers and mule entrails just absolutely captivated newspaper readers at the time. He did make some unbelievably, um, let's say, flawed decisions, I think. That's a way. polite way to put <laughs> but it, how, yes. So how would, Jesse told this story of his glory, but how would the men who traveled with John Fremont talk about those expeditions, of which there were many? Some of them remained his admirers, and some of them became bitterly opposed to this man who occasionally would get them killed. Um, in 1843-44, Fremont went up the Oregon Trail, as we discussed, went all the way to uh, what is now Vancouver, Washington. And by then it's late November. And the thing to do is to spend the winter in Oregon. Or if you're going to go back east, go along the Oregon Trail where you're on a known route. He decided that the thing to do would be to go through an unknown route in winter um, on the, and find some new route back east. Uh, he didn't find such a route. His men got lost in the snows of Oregon and then in the desert of, and snows of, of the mountains of western Nevada and ultimately decided they were going to die unless they went to California, what is now the state of California, the Central Valley. They needed to get there because they knew there were people living there and that they could get supplies. And all they had to do to get there was to go over the Sierra Nevada mountains in the middle of winter. And they went over and it took them like a month, uh, beating down the snow so that they could get across it, eating their animals as the animals died. There were dogs at the beginning of this trip. There were not dogs at the end of this trip. They had been eaten. But this was a guy whose erratic, dreamy decision-making sometimes worked for him. 
There was a moment in 1842 when he had one of these expeditions that seemed to have ended a little too boringly for him, and so he decided, even though he had no orders to do so, to climb the highest mountain he could find. He climbed the mountain with a bunch of his men. They nearly died on the way up. Partway up, they thought they were almost there, and so they left behind their food and their supplies and their coats, as one does when climbing a mountain. <laughs> they got there, planted an American flag on top, and Fremont looked around and decided this must be the highest place in all of North America, which then became part of his legend that he had surmounted the highest point in the Rocky Mountains. It is known today as Fremont Peak. It is not among the 100 highest mountains in North America, but he was a legend for having done this thing that was the rough equivalent of it in its time of the moonshot. We're tenting tonight on the old campground. Stevens keep there talking about John Fremont, whose well-publicized expeditions inspired hundreds of thousands to head west in mid-19th century America. With that in mind, here's Pete Seeger's rendition of a song from the era, Tenting Tonight. And friends we love so dear. We're going to take a short break and come back with more of Steve Inskeep, talking about the bitter partisan playbook for presidential elections covered in his book, Imperfect Union. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is On Second Thought. Many are the hearts that are looking for the right to see the dawn of peace. I'm Virginia Prescott, back with Steve Inskeep, recorded live at the Carter Presidential Library for GPB's On Second Thought. The host of Morning Edition and Up First joined me in Atlanta to talk about his new book, Imperfect Union. Before the break, we heard about how Jessie Fremont publicized her husband John's role in America's westward expansion. Fremont rode that celebrity to become the presidential nominee of the newly formed Republican Party in 1856. Here's his campaign song, The Fremont Train, sung by Oscar Brand. Clear the track, you filibusters. Now's no time for threats and blusters. Clear the track or air you dream on. You'll be neath the car, Fremont. In many ways, that fierce three-way race between Fremont, Democrat James Buchanan, and Millard Fillmore running on the anti-immigrant American Party ticket created a partisan playbook for future elections. At rallies, supporters chanted Jesse's name along with candidate John. She remained his unwavering champion as he set out on sometimes disastrous expeditions, often leaving her to fend for herself and young children for months at a stretch. I asked Stephen Skeep if he ever found any evidence of Jesse's anger at John's restlessness and flawed decision-making. It's a remarkable story the words that Jesse Benton Fremont has left behind, what she said and what she didn't say. When he wrote his best-selling books about his adventures, which made him famous, she was sometimes his secretary, sometimes his editor, sometimes his writing partner, sometimes his, his ghost writer. Can um, I pause to say? Yes. Because his expeditions left him so tired that he couldn't write him by himself. Yes, he was unfitted for writing, and so he would dictate uh, and his wife sometimes would be the person putting the words down on the page. And she would also be his representative when he was gone, his political representative. She would be the one writing the president and asking for things. But in later years, she began writing in her own name. 
rather than helping him to write. She did this to defend him. First, she wrote a book defending his conduct in the Civil War, and then she did this to support them because that incredible fortune that he got thanks to the work of the Mexicans, he managed to blow in the 1870s in bad investments. And they were ranging from kind of broke to very broke for the last uh, decades of their lives. And she wrote memoirs of their experiences, magazine articles and books and other things, and they are remarkable. And I'll just mention one called A Year of American Travel. She describes uh, her tremendous depression and despair. She refers to it a number of times in the book, how horrible she feels, but she never quite gets around to saying why. Um, and what I learned from assembling their lives in a kind of timeline is that days before the story begins, days before the story that she tells in this memoir, uh, they had a baby who died. The baby died when the Fremonts were heading west. John was off on another expedition, and Jesse decided to accompany him to the frontier, which was then what is now Kansas City. And the baby died on a steamboat on the Missouri River, uh, not far from Jefferson City, Missouri. And it was not long afterward that they arrived at the frontier, and John outfitted his expedition and rode off and left her. Now, there's a romantic moment. Uh, that first day, they only made about 10 miles, and so he rode back in the night to see her one more hour and went away again. But he still went away on what turned out to be a really ill-advised expedition. And yes, you could argue that maybe he should have stuck around for a while or just canceled the expedition because it was a bad season for it anyway, uh, that he could have thought about things in a different way. But he didn't. And she was left alone. Um, and it's clear from her writing that this affected her, but she never directly addressed that. And I think from her writing, she believed this was her duty to endure. She writes about this later as her contribution to the cause, or part of it anyway, was enduring the absence of her husband for months or even years at a time. You talked a little bit earlier about his political expediency. When he ran for Senate or was campaigning for Senate in California, then comes the emergence of the Republican Party. Now, this is such an interesting party, the formation of this, and I'm not sure how many of you know the history, but it's always good to get a review of the seemingly disparate interests of the abolitionists and the nativists. How did that all come together in this party in the 1850s? Yeah, it is an amazing story. It's related to the demographic change that I told you about before. The North was becoming more populous. That demographic change made the North more powerful. And as the nation became more divided over slavery, Northerners realized that it was now possible to win a presidential election with Northern votes alone. There had never been a political party that could have the slightest chance of winning a national election without compromising in some way with what was called the slave power, the, the power of slavery in the South. And now it seemed possible to do that. And the Republican Party was the vehicle. And the first person that they nominated for president to try this was John Charles Fremont in 1856. An incredibly divisive, incredible, incredibly bitter election in which leaders in the South said, if the Republicans win this, they're cutting us out of power forever and we are leaving the union, we are out of here. 
but it was still going to be a difficult task for Republicans to win enough votes in the North. And what you said is exactly true. There were only so many abolitionists in the country, actually quite few. It was considered an extreme position. There were people opposed to the expansion of slavery, but not many who proposed to actually eliminate slavery. It's remarkable to think today that people were against the abolition of slavery, even if they believed slavery was wrong, because they didn't want to live alongside a bunch of free black people. And so you needed more voters. And Republicans realized that there was this huge and powerful anti-immigrant movement in America by the 1850s. And Republicans looked at these voters and wanted their votes because they realized that some people who hated immigrants also hated slavery. They didn't want to compete for jobs against immigrants, also didn't want to compete for jobs against people who were enslaved. And so you could get some of their votes. And the challenge for Republican leaders was to win some of those votes without being so entirely tainted by the nativist movement that they would lose other votes. I'm Virginia Prescott, and you're listening to my conversation with Steve Inskeep. We're talking about his book, Imperfect Union. Our conversation was recorded live at the Carter Center for GPBs on Second Thought. So this is also the election of 1856. This is a pretty ugly fight, and there are a couple things contributing to this, but there's also the, the sort of OG uh, birther conspiracy going on here. It's amazing. His, his political opponents... Uh, revealed the secret of his illegitimate birth, which Jesse tried to cover up. That falsehood was exposed. Then they made him into an immigrant rather than the son of an immigrant. And then they made him into a Catholic. Um, and it was very clear to Republican managers that they were going to lose a lot of votes if they could not dispute this Catholic uh, claim and their candidate declined to say anything about it. Fremont did not want to deny being a Catholic because to deny that you were a Catholic while running for president would be to admit that a Catholic should not be president. And he wouldn't do it. And you identify this as possibly the most courageous thing he ever did. I think so. Uh, I, this is someone who'd shown a lot of physical courage, but this was a moment of moral courage. And there are all these contradictions, and that's true of all of us in a way, isn't it? Um, this is a guy who celebrated the diversity of America. He writes about the incredible variety of his expeditions, and he was proud of that, but would also speak of Indians, including the ones who worked for him, on whom his life depended in a very patronizing and racist way. There's an incredible complexity to this guy's approach to race and to ethnicity and immigration. Um, he's for things and against them at the same time. Uh, his thinking is not really clear, and we can blame him for that, and in many instances we absolutely should, but maybe we can also use that as an opportunity to reflect on our own contradictions and whether our own thoughts entirely agree with themselves or make sense. As an interviewer, and you did all these research on John Z, the couple I'm now calling John Z. Um, John Z. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Is there a question that comes to mind for you that you want to know from one or both of them? Sometimes I wonder if John really loved his wife. Mm. My mom 
read this book and didn't think so, uh, which is maybe one of the reasons that I wonder it. And I wonder what he was ultimately reaching for, what was truly going on in his head. I wonder that a little about Jesse, but somehow I feel like I know her a little better. I understand her uh, a little better, even though she was the one who was much more artful about deceiving. Hmm. The uh, epigraph of the book is a sentence from Jesse, and it's from one of her memoirs. And she's saying it half jokingly, but I think that it truly represents her approach to life. And the sentence is, it would hardly do to tell the whole truth about everything. And she would sometimes lie in correcting his image, or she would buy into something that was kind of bogus, or stretch something, or omit things. But one thing that becomes apparent with the passage of time is that you can figure out what it is that people omitted. And often they tell you, they reveal a lot to you by what they don't say, if you can puzzle that out. Well, I imagine as an interviewer, that's something you think about a lot. Yeah. What's not being said? Yeah, absolutely. Please join me in thanking Steve Inskeep. Thank you. Yo-Yo Ma, Mark O'Connor, and Edgar Meyer performing Old Country Fairy Tale as we close out an edited version of my conversation with NPR anchor and author Steve Inskeep. You can hear the full conversation about his book, Imperfect Union, including Steve talking about how he gets beyond guests who stonewall him. The full conversation is posted at gpbnews.org. Our thanks to Acapella Books and to Brandon Bishop, Tony Clark, and Ben Mayer at the Carter Presidential Library. Ben and Tony gave Steve and our production team a tour of the library after we were done. It was absolutely fascinating. And you can see some photos at gpbnews.org, on Twitter at OST Talk, or on our Facebook group, GPB Radios On Second Thought. Clap your hands, everybody, if you got what it takes. Because I'm Curtis Blow, and I want you to know that these are the words. Now to another union that endured over years, miles, and the fickle winds of fame. This one began in 1982, about a century and a half after the Fremonts, when 15-year-old Joseph Simmons met Justine Jones at a Long Island roller rink. Simmons was then known as DJ Run, a protege of Curtis Blow, the very first rapper to have a commercial hit, The Breaks, in 1980. In a bus, breaks on the car, breaks to make you a superstar, breaks to win and breaks to lose. But these here breaks rock your shoes, and these are the breaks. Run and Justine began talking on the phone and exchanging letters. In one, Simmons closed with, I will marry you someday. That all got swept aside when, at 18, the Queen's Natives career exploded as a member of the pioneering new school rap group Run DMC. The trio had a string of hits, like this one, It's Tricky. It's tricky to rock around, to rock around, that's right, our time is tricky. How is it, baby? Things really took off in 1986 when Run-DMC collaborated with rock band Aerosmith on a remix of Walk This Way, the first ever multi-platinum hip-hop record. 
Run DMC became millionaires, MTV darlings, and were later named to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Run got married and divorced, but rekindled things with Justine later and made good on his word. They married in 1994. A decade later, he was ordained an Episcopal minister, now known as Rev Run. Old School Love and Why It Works is a new book by Rev Run and Justine Simmons. It's about how they've kept their 25-plus-year marriage fresh and alive. They take turns sharing their perspectives, biblical verses, and hard-won advice on the joys and trials of a long partnership. Here's Rev Run speaking with HuffPost.com. You know what? It's, it's such a beautiful thing, marriage, right? And people are like, oh, my God, I want it, I want it. And then they don't put the work in. Mm. Marriages break up for one reason selfishness. The two offer real-world wisdom on blended families, trust, and keeping the flame of romance alive, which, as Justine told The View, can be fueled by just paying attention. Well, for him and I, we are very selfless. I'm constantly um, checking him to see if he's okay, and he's doing the same for me. They've come a long way together, from that roller rink to reality TV stardom to the loss of a child to a lasting union with mutual respect. Rev Run and Justine Simmons will be at SCAD Show in Atlanta on Monday, February 3rd to tell their story and to talk about old school love. And you can find out more at gpbnews.org. We will leave you today with Run DMC and Aerosmith performing Walk This Way at the Grammy Awards just last Sunday. On Second Thoughts, producer is Priya Mahadevan. Supervising producer is Amelia Brock. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. Our intern is Julia Sanders. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thank you so much for spending some time with On Second Thought.